Welcome to the Mike on Much podcast. I am your host, Mike Bierman. And for the second week in a row, uh, Max is not here. In fact, uh, and because it went so well last week, we have Shane Cunningham filling in again. Hey, Mike. How's it going, Shane? Well, that's good. So we have a good show today, Shane. We have Carly Rae Jepsen as the feature guest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were there in the interview? I was. Yeah. yeah I Again, I kind of... Didn't do much. I got nervous. I got star- I was starstruck, to be honest. We're going to get to that. Okay, sorry. But before that, speaking of stars and being starstruck, you were at a Taylor Swift concert. I did. I went with my sister. Um, I kind of wanted to hawk the tickets, to be to be 100% honest. I, I find this with most concerts. When you book it, you kind of want to see the show. Yeah. And by the time of the day of the show, there's always something you got to do, or you don't <laughs> feel like you want to see it. When I bought the tickets a year over a year ago, I was kind of rolling in money. And then I was like at a, at a good point where Tiff's like, oh, it's a hundred bucks. I was like, oh, whatever. So I bought, uh, bought the tickets. I, I figured they'd be not great, but decent for a hundred bucks. And uh, they were pure shit. I was in the nosebleed section. It was horrible. Like, <laughs> t- ticket wise. Was there anyone in your section? Did you like make friends with other fans in your section? It was, it was kind of a weird crowd. There was like a bunch of 40-year-old men with their daughters. <laughs> oh, like okay. That 40 makes to 60-year-old men with their daughters, and they all ironically were wearing Taylor Swift shirts. There was a bunch of hot, really hot moms, like cool moms, like from the, um, what's that movie called? Mean Girls. A bunch of those, and they were all buying their kids beer. Seriously? Yes. So, like, there's. 11-year-old girls to my left that had a rolling rocks and were cheersing, and I wondered how the f*** they got them. Then Cool Mom came and sat down next to them, so clearly <laughs> Cool Mom bought it for her. And Tiff and I were sitting beside these, like, young girls, like, all excited. Like, they were, like, bouncing off the walls and talking about every Taylor Swift song. And the one girl was super knowledgeable on, on her discography, and the one didn't know as much beyond 1989, and she was being kind of ridiculed about it. And Tiff and I were like eavesdropping the whole time in this funny, cute conversation that these girls were having. And then, oh, yeah, we we all got these wristbands, these awesome wristbands that glow. So it goes to... Do they give those out when you walk in? No, they were attached to the back of the seat. Oh, sweet. So you sit down, and that's how I started talking to these little girls. They're like, oh, you have a wristband (laughs) uh, at your seat. And I was like, awesome. And we're all excited. And then uh, Tiff and I are listening to the conversation. The concert starts. The wristband starts glowing up. And it's fucking awesome. Like, I'm excited for it. I'm dancing along to the music. And then the girls are like, oh, I hear there's going to be a special guest. And Tiff had told me that it's probably going to be Drake because it's in Toronto. And she said that was the buzz on the GO station or whatever. Uh, on, <laughs> on the, the GO G- train into Toronto. On the GO train into Toronto, everyone was buzzing that it's going to be Drake. And the other girl's like, no, it's going to be The weekend." And the girl's like, oh, if it's the weekend, I'm going to lose it. And the girl goes, if it's Drake, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> she said that. She's like, I'll die. I'm going to kill myself. I'm just going to leave if it's Drake. So then super pumped. And then Taylor is, I can't see her, but the little aunt is doing very well down there. <laughs> and then she's like, y'all are doing so good. I might have to bring out a special guest later. And I was like, yeah. She's like, you going to continue to be good? And everyone's like, yeah. And she's like, well, we'll see about that. And then it was, everyone was going nuts. And then she did uh, a couple more songs, all the hits. It was a pretty good show. How is the 11-year-old with the Rolling Rock doing at this point? Loving it. Dancing. We're in a little, like, tube top. Every, a lot of people were in cheerleader outfits, too, okay. in homage to that uh, Shake It Off video. And uh, But this girl was, like, real country. The girl with the Rolling Rock. Yes. And Are you sure she was 11 and wasn't just, like, a young-looking 19-year-old? 100%. It was... 11 12 tops they were underage <laughs> and for sure and cool mom was serving them 
she gave she bought them one beer. I think the mom said one beer and that's it because they didn't have any more than the one. The right. whole time they were kind of nursing the one beer. Well, it's a lot for an 11 or 12-year-old. It, it is. So then Taylor comes out and I'm getting kind of excited and she's like, oh, you guys were even better than I thought. And then they're like, yeah. And she's like, well, she's like, uh, this next person sold 20 million albums. And then I'm like, Drake's really popular, but has he sold 20 million? And the girl beside me is like, I think he sold 20 million. Oh my God, Drake sold 20 million. And she goes, uh, and I used to open for him. And then the girls are getting kind of fishy. And then Tiff goes, Nick Jonas. She's open for Nick Jonas. I didn't know that. I'm like, oh, that'd be cool to see Nick Jonas. <laughs> and she goes, the one, the only, Keith Urban. <laughs> and then the crowd like kind of like dies down a little bit. And like, it's not like a real cheer. And the girl's like instantly pissed. She goes, Keith Urban. She's like, who's that? And then they go text on their phone. And then she goes, Stacy doesn't know who the f- Keith Urban is either. And they start swearing and going nuts. And they did not move the rest of the entire show and became like young, ornery little adults. Like they were like pissed. It's like their first lesson in disappointment. Yeah. And I, I was pissed off for them, but Tiff and I were just howling at them. It was so funny. It's hard to describe how funny it was, but the the mood from absolute elation to see the, their ultimate idol, and they were even more excited about the surprise guests than they were Taylor Swift. Right. To just see it all come crashing down and them swearing. Like they went from cute little girls to who the f is this guy? And they they hated him and he was wearing this like V-neck like down to his belly button. It was so, and he was like trying to appeal to the youth mark. It was it was horribly embarrassing. The the drunk girls, the eleven year olds, they loved Keith Urban though. They were the one people who were actually elated with it. The eleven year olds with the rolling rock were excited about Keith. Yes. They were cheersing and dancing and screaming. <laughs> And then the cool mom went, chug, 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 chug. <laughs> no, she didn't. No, no. <laughs> pulls out keys and they shotgun it. No. <laughs> but yeah, so that was super, like, I can't, I can't describe it properly, but Tiff and I were, like, in tears. Do you think when, like, sort of a hush comes over a stadium, like, is there any, do you think on stage they feel the disappointment? We were trying to think of ways that it could be better th- to that intro because I noticed on Taylor's Instagram the level of celebrity that she's calling in as her special guest, they're not the A-list. They're like the runner-up on American Idol or someone who's got like 1.2 million followers on Instagram or something. You right. know, it's never the big, big ones. But I got – so I was I, – I had low expectations, but I thought if anyone is to do the Toronto show, it's going to be Drake because he kind of likes doing that. Like he'll host the Junos or something, you know what I he mean? He seems game for anything. Exactly. It's a big deal. So I got sucked into the – maybe it will be the Weekender Drake or something like that, but – it, it was a very weird atmosphere, and we. I was thinking maybe Keith Urban should have come out unannounced, so you kind of see him. But the buildup was just too big. Like he should have just like came out and did like a guitar solo, and then people were like, "Oh my god, that's Keith Urban or something." And sure, sure. Screaming. And then it's less. She teased it too much. Too, way too much. 20 million albums. That was probably like in 1998 or something. <laughs> and like you couldn't download music. You know what I mean? All right. So Taylor Swift. Other, I mean, other than the nosebleeds and the drinking 11 year old and the disappointment of Keith Urban, was it a good show? You and I had gone to the Miley Cyrus show. We did last and year. And I was kind of expecting something, I guess on par at least, but Miley's show still blows it out of the water. That was an amazing show. It was. It was crazy. And now I'm into Miley's new album after that emotional SNL performance. It got me sucked into that new one I didn't know existed. But her dead pets, yeah. Anyways, Miley, 10 out of 10. Taylor, I'd give her show 7 out of 10. If it had been Drake, would she have gotten a bump? 
Oh, you get a one-point bump for Shervis Drake or The Weeknd. All right. Well, Shane, this week we also interviewed Carly Rae Jepsen. Yes. Um, Max was away for this one, so you were producing. Yeah, this one, there was a lot of pressure because we had a very short time window. and She was hosting The Social at the time. That's right. Uh, so there's a show on CTV called The Social. It's like The View. I'm sure you know it. And Carly was on there sort of, I think she was doing a co-host with the other four ladies on the show. And basically they told us, they said, so she's doing all this press all day. They say, we can squeeze you guys in if we do it between the social and when she goes to Chum FM to do a radio thing. But that's literally like a 20 minute window. Anyway, she comes off like uh, the set at the social and she like comes rolling through and they're like, let Carly have like a moment to decompress and then we'll bring you guys in or whatever. And we'd already sort of like set up our pod area in the green room. Mm-hmm. And then so finally uh, her publicist is like, all right, come on in gents. And what do you um, think she does when she decompresses in there? She's like chugs a brew. Imagine she's shotgunned a brew, a rolling rock. Pulls it <laughs> um, I have no idea. That's a good question. Maybe just a breather, maybe a, a muffin, a coffee. Or she just farts and like lets one rip. Cause it was just one minute. eh? like she didn't decompress for long. Like, you know, when you're on a date and you just fart when it's over. <laughs> um, so but yeah, I digress. Yeah. Uh, so we go in and uh, we introduce ourselves yeah, I, I don't even know if I introduced myself. I felt kind of awkward. The seat scenario, I just had to sit beside you. We were squeezed together on like, mm-hmm. a, like a footstool. So to set it up, uh, I'm trying to think of how to describe this in the best way so people can get a visual understanding of how it was. So imagine she's in like a chair and then there's like a footstool in front of her and then there's another footstool in front of that one. Shane and I are sitting on the footstool across from her. The little H4N is on the footstool in between the middle of us. And then Carly's comfortably sitting in the chair, but she's a little cramped. So the knees kind of kept hitting the footstool the more she talked. Uh, And since I'm a bit of an idiot and I only have one job, of course, I position the mic the wrong way. (laughs) And serendipitously, someone accidentally like sat on a converter and a TV turned on. Yes. And that we had to shut the TV off. And then you're like, Shane, you have it aimed the wrong way i had it aimed at me it's just like breathing like uh, oh my god it's carly ray i was talking out loud to myself too which... a funny thing is so years ago uh, so i was in a band we've talked a bit about it on this podcast and when we were sort of like things were cooking for us we played this um radio show in kitchener called beat rocks the blocks like a big stage like this big kind of festival show type thing and carly ray before she like blew up like well before she blew up played the same festival um it's just like her and her guitar player like very sort of stripped down uh a bunch of people were on that show like down with webster marina's trench and uh basically after the show we were all kind of hanging out backstage and at some point a bottle of jameson's ended up getting passed around um and carly was there she was hanging out she was feeling loose like it was fun so we were all kind of sharing this bottle of jameson's so like max knows this story you know this story so everybody's like are you gonna remember the fact that years ago you and carly ray shared a bottle of Jameson's backstage at like a, at one of these concerts. And I was like, eh, I don't want to bring it up. It seems like you're trying to like, my fear is always like, it's, you're trying to make a connection where there's not mm-hmm. one. Like, Hey, remember that one time we were around each other, but Max was insistent that I bring it up off of the top. And yeah, she didn't really seem to re- react at all to it. She didn't. <laughs> Let's get to Carly Rae Jepsen. Going in. Hi, how's it going? Hi. I'm Mike. Hi. Hi. I'm Shane. Hi, nice to meet you. I'm gonna sit on. We're actually both gonna sit on this yeah. thing together Great. and get cozy. It's just audio stuff, right? Yeah, you okay, got, yeah, right. you got Sorry, it. I'm like munching out. No, munch away. We actually 
have swigged Jameson's together years ago. We have in Kitchener. Uh, it's nice to see you again. Uh, we played a show called Beat Rocks the Block. I don't know if you remember. Oh yeah, that at all. yeah, yeah. You like your guitar dude. Yeah, yeah, Tavi Tav. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <clears throat> all right, so we're just jump right in this thing. Sounds good. How's the social? It's good. Yeah. I sound like Tom Waits right now. It's nice. It's like a sexy, smoky rasp. Yeah, we'll see you tomorrow when I'm singing, if we still feel that way, but thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So this album is sort of this massive, critical hit. Like, people <laughs> love this record, it seems like. Thank um, you. And you've worked with sort of this vast sort of mix of producers, songwriters. And going through the names, I mean, a name like Max Martin is sort of this, he's this ominous sort of hit machine. Like the Wizard of Oz. A little bit, That's yeah. That's how I look at him, yeah. But you've seen Behind the Curtain. I have, I have. <laughs> what does that look like? What does a day working with someone like that look like? Well, um, the first time I met Max, I was actually in Stockholm, so it was a very fairy tale-like story in its own way, because I I went there, it was my first time in, oh. Oh, we got TV. We're all watching TV. The TV just came on in the green room. Sorry. For those of us listening. Sorry. So we're going to go with this for the omnidirectional right. stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, that was Sorry. good producing. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, do you mind re-asking me that question? I'll start Not fresh. Okay, cool. No, it's good. Okay. Yeah, it's audio. We can go. <laughs> okay, ahead. cool. Um, I was just asking about what a day, you know, working with Max Martin looks like, sort of the minutia of working with someone like that. Well, I worked out um, with Max um, on the last album, Kiss. We mm -hmm. did Tonight I'm Getting Over You. And what I loved about meeting him for the first time was he was this ominous, like, Wizard of Oz type character, and I was nervous and excited. And at the end of our session, I did something kind of spontaneous and said, listen, I've been waiting my whole life to meet you. And I thought that if I ever did, I would show you this idea that I have. And what I love about him is that on top of being genius and hardworking and all that stuff, he's also very encouraging to other artists who are learning to write and kind of trying to perfect their art. And he stayed up late that night with me working through my idea, showing it to his friend Lucas. And uh, fast forward a couple years with Emotion, didn't just come here to dance, ends up being like reinvented. And it's all because of, of people like Max who kind of encourage that. Is, is his strength sort of in the encouragement or is he like a, a master of melody? Is he about this sort of chord structure? Like what is it that he sort of specializes I think if you look at his repertoire he can do it all um, on emotion he was a little bit more overseeing a couple songs that I had already kind of worked on so much as like and not so much like face-to-face um, -face, like sessions where we're starting fresh together but uh, if you're talking about his resume and what he's capable of the man can do it all another name was Ariel Rickshed did I say that last name right Ar Ariel Rashad yeah oh Rashad yeah. oh yeah. good fancy um, <laughs> what musical tendencies does he bring uh, to the album um, Ariel and I are a little bit like kindred spirits. I think I, I found the same similarity with Dev, and it was a, a beautiful collaboration to do all that with these these two gentlemen. Um, they come from worlds a bit more like indie, um, um, alternative tastes. Were you a fan of Haim? I was a fan of Haim. I was actually what led me to Ariel was Sky Ferrara. Am I oh. saying her last name right? Ferrara. I'm gonna trust yeah. you because you got yeah. uh, Ariel's yeah. last name right. And uh, what led me to Dev was Solange. So essentially, I made a list of all the artists that I loved and the music that I was attracted to, and then I dug into who was involved in producing these. And I either had my A&R guy reach out or I reached out personally. And said, I don't want to make Call Me Maybe again. I don't want to make Kiss again. I want to make something new. And if you want to experiment with me, I'm free Friday. And to <laughs> my delight, most people were willing and game to try something different. When you have sort of so many songs to choose from. Did you have a lot to pick from, aside from what just made the record? Yes, I, I was writing almost to write though at the beginning. I didn't know what I wanted to make and I felt that part of finding that clarity would just be working through the process of, of 
trying things without judgment. Um, I think there was a natural rebellion after Call Me Maybe to want to make nothing of pop at all. I kind of made like these indie, like live drum records. <laughs> Go and, the other way. Yeah, it was, and then that didn't feel right. And then I, I kind of did the opposite where I was making very pure pop and that didn't feel um, satisfying either. Um, what really started to excite me and attract me was this world of 80s pop and with a little bit of indie flavor to it. And um, that was in my own way, um, uh, maybe a stamp of how to make it, not just a period piece, but something still new. Um, and once I got engaged in that, it was a song called Emotion, I knew I was off to the races with this album. Um, when you're deciding to make a record with a bunch of sort of producers and songwriters, I mean, is, has it been an easy thing for you to collaborate over the years, like whether it's Call Me Maybe or anything before, or if you, was it hard to let go of being the sole sort of creative voice in writing your music? Um, no, because I, I do feel like it, it does come from, um, if not journal entries, but very much ideas that I kind of um, keep almost like... Uh, uh, cookies from a cookie jar. I actually got nicknamed that, that I'm a cookie jar of ideas. And it, what's really nice for me in collaborations is to be with people who have strengths where I have weaknesses, that are good at structure, that can take my eight too many ideas and be like, why don't we just repeat that a couple of times? And um, and if there's a friend bond too, you, you learn to trust each other and to say all those scary ideas out loud. You learn to uh, challenge each other and, and you usually f land in the same place if you're like-minded. Right. And, um, and it doesn't work with everybody, but when I find people that I love and that um, write songs in the same sort of way that I write songs or even challenge me to look at a song differently, it can be um, a greater experience than just writing alone for sure. Was there anything that you really fought for song-wise to be on the record or did everything make it that you were like, this is exactly what I want? There was a song um, called Let's Get Lost that ended up being the last track to make the album um, and I remember feeling like there was something to it. There was maybe the sax solo that like hooked me in or something about, I don't know, the lightness of it. Um, and uh, no one was really reacting, and I do base a lot of what makes the album off of reactions of friends, family, label mates. But I felt it was good anyways, and um, I had a listening session with Deb and Ariel actually in New York, and I played this, and I said, no one's getting it. Am I nuts? And they did. They got it, and it felt like enough encouragement that I, I stalled the record by a couple days. It was due in that I went in to do harmonies and a new sax riff with a, a guy that we knew, and um, I think those last little changes convinced the rest of the team, and it made the album the, the nick of time. <laughs> right, right. Um, you were mentioning Call Me Maybe, and that's such like a, a sort of massive song, and you broke in such a sort of dramatic way. What advice would Carly now give Carly then? You know, um, I think of all the things that have challenges and like crazy things that have gone down in my life, I think one of the things that I'm proud of is sort of um, the ride of handling that craziness and like not feeling like I had to, just, to keep putting music out after yeah. that and, and kind of living up to something that I wasn't ready for. I had an amazing ride with that, but I, I think it was a really hard decision, but to take a beat and... and take my time with this album and not feel like there was any rush or promotional reason to get something out until it was ready was one of the hardest but I think um, bravest decisions I've ever made. Yeah, because I mean like when a song like that happens it's obviously this massive positive thing because it gets you into all these sort of other forums and people know who you are but it also has, it can have a negative sort of weight. Did you feel the weight of that? Did you have to say no to a lot of sort of like different voices saying we need to put this out or this out and keep following things up or... It's a blessing and it's a challenge, but ultimately it's it's mostly a gift. Sure. And, um, I mean, 26 years of trying different avenues to hopefully get that break out of Canada, and that's the goal, and you don't know how it works because there isn't sort of some set rule of, like, if you do this, this, and this, it's, it's a mystery. And when young artists ask me, sort of, what do you do, it's sort of like... 
I don't know, because half my story has been very much based on luck and kind of being in the right place, right time. Um, I would say that watching that song take off, there was that, yes, it's working, yes, it's working, and then, okay, that's good, okay, stop working, stop working, and, uh, and there was no attention paid to the rest of the album or the other singles, but I can look at that and be really upset or angry, or I can look at that and see that it kind of set the stage for me to have an audience for this new album, and, and that itself is uh, an opportunity if you look at it like that. It's almost like however you frame it, you could frame it. It's all a, a frame of mind, yeah, and... Um, and I think about the three minimum wage jobs that I was keeping and the posters that I'd go around town yeah. putting up myself in Canada. You really can't be too upset about getting to travel and, and do music for a living. Do you ever get nostalgic about those days or are you like, no, I'm good where I'm at? I really appreciate those days and there's there's value to that. I think there was a really important um, two, three years in Vancouver where the, the underground music scene, whether it's the Anza Club or the Media Club or the Piccadilly Bars that we would like play little covers of songs and, and new songs we were writing and working on really established um, that little spark in light of who I am as a writer and artist and if I didn't have that time I, I probably would be a lot more lost in the career that I find myself in now. Does it make you more appreciative and give you more perspective sort of going through all that and then sort of having a massive breakout after doing that for years? I think it almost made me so appreciative at the beginning that it was almost, um, it was almost, uh, I turned into Yes Girl where I was just so grateful that I, I can do an album in three months and yes, I'll wear whatever you want me to wear for this thing. And I think one of the things that I've learned in time with this next uh, round and this next album is that no is very valuable too and that you have to be willing to kind of direct your team and be vocal and it isn't rude or ungrateful of you, it's just um, a powerful and, and stronger version of your art. Did you find that a hard transition to sort of become the boss and a very vocal sort of leader? Like, I mean, you're running your own operation. You're, you're, you're literally where, where the buck stops. Is that a difficult I, thing to come around to? I don't look at myself as the boss. I look at us as a team, and I look at every person involved in it as very valuable. However, I think that the vision of where we're going and where they're stealing the ship is very much based around, obviously, the music that I'm making. And um, and that's where I get to kind of say, this way, and usually everyone gets it. There's there's never somebody who's saying, that makes no sense to me, if you, if you really tell them what the goal is and what your future looks like. We're kind of headed in the same place. And I think, ultimately, you're the one that has the most at stake. It's your name, at the end of the day, on all of this, do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, I, I think that, but it's all of our lives and we're all invested and if you talk to everybody who works in, in, uh, in this career with me, it's a commitment of a, a daily thing and if, I think if they didn't care about it the way that I do, um, we wouldn't all be getting along the way we do <laughs> right. and enjoying it so much. Um, it, it's, it's something that we all make sacrifices for, for sure. Obviously, your music and sort of your success has brought you a lot of sort of amazing places and you've played a lot of amazing gigs. Um, you've done Saturday Night Live and we're huge Saturday Night Live fans. What was that experience like? It was really exciting. Um, one of my concerns with releasing this album was um, uh, the first single, I Really Like You. It was probably the most uh, youthful and kind of transitional song from Kiss into Emotion. And I felt like it didn't speak for what the rest of the album was, but it was probably the right first move. Um, of course, once we got Tom Hanks on board, I was much more stoked about the of idea. Course. But I really wanted to sort of counterbalance that sweetness and that lightness with something that was a bit more sincere and um, deeper. And uh, the song All That was probably the A to Z spectrum of what the album had to offer. And so when I found out that with Saturday Night Live we were given the option of 
playing a second song. Um, I had uh, my friends uh, bring up the idea of this. Why don't you do all that? And it was, I just wanted to kiss them. It felt like <laughs> the perfect opportunity to showcase these two flavors and sides to what emotion was. Um, and it was probably the first television performance to date where I felt so much myself. It was really terrifying and really, really exciting. All right. Well, actually, one last question. If you weren't sort of doing this, um, what would you be doing? Um... I recently had five days off in San Sebastian. It's probably the first time that I've had off um, in like six months. And it was really life-changing in a weird way. I've just been thinking about a fantasy of opening up a bakery and moving to Spain. That's wow. what I would do. You'd open a bakery and move to Spain. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, yeah. thanks so much for your time. <laughs> Thank you. All right. This is the part of the show Max, who is not here, likes to call the dessert. We talked to our friend, pop culture aficionado, Shane Cunningham. Shane, you're still here. What's going I'm on? I'm back. <laughs> That's what I said last time. Um, yes, I'm still here. So the number one movie this weekend uh, in North America was the Ridley Scott film, The Martian, starring I Matt I thought Damon. it was the number two movie of the weekend. Is that a poo joke? Yep. Like Please you thought it was- Stunk sh- like shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's the deal. I saw this movie tonight. Shane saw it on the weekend. He told me, I'm coming on the podcast. I want to talk about The Martian. I was like, I really want to see The Martian. I'm a big like fan of like anything sort of space. I don't want to talk about it with you until I've seen it. I think it's important that I see it if we're going to discuss it. And I'm just going to guess, even though we haven't talked about this, that you loved it and you think it's like a commercial, like awesome blockbuster. I thought it was very, very enjoyable. I think it's exactly what that kind of movie should be. You don't feel like maybe it was written like a hack comedy? A little bit? Like, hey, hey, Martinez, you got your head up your ass out there? <laughs> you, you know I always do. <laughs> like, anytime it was a... A tense moment. Yeah. Like where I really wanted to be invested in Matt Damon. Yeah. He'd crack some stupid joke that was totally inappropriate for the moment. And I'd be like, he doesn't give a shit. He's not even scared. I'm trying to be scared for him so I can be somewhat invested in the film. There was no point where he he literally exploded at one point and then came to his camera. He does like little testimonials, like 127 hour style. And then he's and his hair is still smoking from the explosion. <laughs> And he's like, I just blew up. And he's just wait. He's pandering to the audience for laughs. And luckily, I was in an audience full of like-minded people. And no one laughed. No one would give Damon any laughs. I don't think it was supposed to be a comedy. Like, I didn't laugh out loud any of that. No one in my theater did either. But we were watching a guy sort of try to keep his spirits up. He has no one to talk to, but, so he's okay, going to talk to Mike, the camera. Mike, I get that. Spirits are up. Like his spirits are were up happier than I am ninety percent of my life, and I'm on Earth surrounded by friends and babes to f- <laughs> like. He was happier than I've ever been, and he was in the most dire situation. I think that was his character. He was, that was sen- his point. His he was okay. His character is essentially trapped on Mars. Yep, and he, there's a great chance he won't be saved. And he is just dancing to disco music the whole time and making potatoes. So what, would you just crawl up in a ball and wait to die? Yes. Right? <laughs> of course. I well, just, that, well, that would be a very sort of non-entertaining, boring movie. I would, I would movie. just nosedive. Of course. I'm not saying. You no, no, I'm saying, what I would do. I would not, nosedive off that ship and kill myself instantly. How could the story be better if he was morose okay. and have you sad? Seen, have you seen the movie Moon? Yes, David Bowie's son directed. Yeah. Did you think that was a better movie and a better way to like construct like madness and slowly losing your mind and encompassing both the the funny things that can happen and the scary shit that can happen? I think I think Moon is a a very I I think it's a better movie. It's an amazing science fiction movie. To me, this movie was basically like Castaway 
um, or Cast Gravity. Away's way better. In Castaway, I'm like, holy shit. Tom Hanks is scared, terrified, elated at times. He's he's descending into madness. And then, you know, you have the you have good moments, you have bad moments. Matt Damon had no bad moments in this movie. Do you remember him being remotely scared? Remember yeah. He, do you remember when he blew up, though? Didn't you think that was kind of weird, him being happy with the smoking That hair? was still pretty early on. I think yeah. he was more happy that he was able to get fire happening on Mars. He knew that he was close. Like, he was like, I can't believe I actually got fire to happen on Mars uh, when NASA basically builds everything so it can't catch fire. Right. Okay, but... I, I, I get where you're coming yeah. from, and I thought Donald Glover completely missed the mark. That character oh made me goodness. like... I, Wait, that I was a so bad, bad SNL sketch. Yes. Donald Glover from Community, Childish Gambino is his rapper. He has like a, like a very tertiary party, shows up for like 10 minutes of the movie, and it is like, it's out of a different movie. You could see his acting like crazy. Oh, my. and when he walked in and showed his badge, and they just let him walk into NASA, <laughs> I was so pissed, man. I was so mad. And how the, how they had to avoid saying the f word, and it was so transparent. They're doing it to maintain a PG rating. It was very enjoyable, though. That movie's good. what was the enjoyable? Part, it's rewatchable. Though? Well, I thought Matt Damon was engaging. Like, yeah, he was mm-hmm. kind of PG and sort of cheesy, and but it's like. I think that's like a, a film that is supposed to appeal to everybody. And I thought his character, I accepted that his character was the sort of guy that was like, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. If I don't mm-hmm. stay positive, I will die. How this movie has an over 90 on Rotten Tomatoes. I think it's just because it's good. No, Mike, can I finish one thought here? No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no um, how it has over 90 on Rotten Tomatoes, I think is 90% of people think it's a six out of 10. And that's uh, sometimes it's very misleading because people are like, this is 90%. But everyone who saw it just thought, oh, it was better than a failing grade. It does fuck with your expectations too, walking in. You're like, 93, that means it's an A+. Plus. But mm-hmm. it, it just means 93% of critics thought it was better than a D-. minus. Every human in this movie is super positive and nice and like willing to go for it and take chances. And, you know, is that realistic? No, but the movie's not realistic. It takes place 20 years in the future when we're on Mars. But I felt like it was a feel-good story. I think a lot of people will like this movie, more this so mo- than a six. This movie should have been called Taking Inventory. Because 80% of the movies, Matt Damon like, I've got 80 potatoes. <laughs> like, no, I've got zero potatoes. What do I do? He's just counting shit. You didn't mind there was too much counting and keeping track of stuff? It I'm was like, part of the process, him surviving. Some people I, are into I, the scientific I, aspect. I normally like that shit, but it was... The same way I enjoyed Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. I enjoyed this movie. This movie is not, like, a great movie. It's weird that it's coming out in October, like, during Oscar season. Yeah, it's, like, masquerading like it's an art film or That's something like, the issue, because yeah. it's certainly not that. It should have came out in the summer with Jurassic Park, because it's fun, but it's, like, kind of fun for maybe, like, a little nerdier type of kid. You know what I mean? But it's not, like, Moon is for thinking, like, adults that are into sci-fi. And that's my other problem. Matt Damon thought he was Jim Carrey that whole movie. The You know, the, the material and the jokes weren't that strong, but I thought he was still charismatic, you know? As, like, a nerdy astronaut that would be in that situation. Mm-hmm. You he know, got, He got a little cocky, too. Well, mm-hmm. look what he did, man. He managed to grow fucking potatoes on Mars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Okay, I, I say... I give it a six out of ten. <laughs> <See>? <laughs> After all that, you give it a pass. Yeah. So I mean, see how the Rotten Tomato shit works. That's it. That's our episode, Shane. It is. Thank you for listening. And if we don't die on the weekend, watch it next time. <laughs> you know I've never done that part. What is it? <laughs> we got to say that all the doodles for the Michael Much podcast are done by Jenna, Jenna Gregory. Doodles. Jenna Gregory at jennasdoodles.com. Gotcha. 
You're, yeah, this is very mm-hmm. going very well so far. You can follow us at Mike on Much on Instagram and Twitter. The Mike on Much podcast this week has been produced by Shane Cunningham. You're welcome. And I am your host, Mike Veerman. See you next week. If we, No, let's say it at the same time. Say it again. Okay. See you next week. If, if we, we don't, don't die, die on, on the weekend. weekend. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs>